tempestuous, controversial, outspoken, brilliant. Classical musicians were the rock stars of 19th century Europe. Their love lives and financial troubles were everyone's favorite gossip. When their opinions turned political, everyone listened, while simultaneously warning them to stay in their lane. Their cutting-edge music drew as much criticism as it did adulation. Superfans wrote them adoring letters and flocked to see them as they toured the globe. And most beloved and despised of all the classical jet set? German composer Richard Wagner and his close collaborator and protege Hans von Bülow, at least the most beloved and despised during their lifetimes. In death, Wagner has maintained both his legacy and his infamy, while von Bülow has been all but forgotten. But perhaps that could have been foreseen. Musical talent aside, Wagner was always the more dashing figure, even according to Von Bülow's wife. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. I'm Carter Roy. And this is Obituaries, a Spotify original from Parcast. Over the next 10 episodes, we're looking at unlikely pairs, giants in their respective fields, who left a deep and lasting impression on the world and each other. Some of these pairs considered themselves allies, some partners and some bitter rivals. But in every case, their legacies are inextricably intertwined. We'll look at their lives side by side to see how their paths converged, how they impacted one another's fates, and ultimately how they were remembered. In this episode, we'll explore the lives and work of 19th century German musicians Richard Wagner and Hans von Bülow, two of the most influential and controversial cultural figures of their era. They revolutionized the landscape of European music through both their collaborations and respective projects. But the musicians shared more than their love of music. They also fell for the same woman a betrayal worthy of one of Wagner's melodramatic operas. It ultimately drove them apart and defined their legacies for years to come. Coming up, Wagner comes to prominence as an iconoclast before taking the rebellious von Bülow under his wing. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I slash Spotify. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wilhelm Richard Wagner was born to be an artist of some kind. His hometown of Leipzig in the German kingdom of Saxony was renowned as one of the region's great cultural centers. By the early 19th century, musical heavyweights like Bach and Mozart had lived and worked there, as had renowned writers like Goethe. Music and literature were everywhere. Young Wagner couldn't help but be immersed in the arts. The only question was which art he would pursue. In fact, the first things Wagner wrote weren't symphonies or concertos. They weren't even musical. They were plays inspired by Shakespeare and Goethe. Wagner's love of literature didn't go away when he found his home in music. It helped him become one of the most innovative and exciting composers of his time. He would go on to write the libretto, that is, the story and lyrics, for all of his operas including his first opera to actually be produced, which was performed in 1836. Unfortunately, the production was a complete failure. In fact, for the first decade or so of his career, Wagner consistently failed commercially. He preferred opera to all other musical forms, but his dark, story-driven compositions and complicated musical arrangements weren't popular with either general audiences or wealthy patrons. The 20-something Wagner and his actress wife moved from city to city, trying to convince reluctant opera directors to produce his work. They were always just one step ahead of the debt collectors. But Wagner wasn't discouraged. As much as he craved fame and adoration, he was secure in his vision. He just had to put his head down and keep working. He believed passionately in innovating opera as a form. He knew it was only a matter of time before his music found its audience. Wagner's faith paid off in 1842, when his opera Rienzi premiered in Dresden, the Saxon kingdom's capital. It was received warmly. To the city's cosmopolitan audiences, the production's length and complexity were a breath of fresh air. They wanted to see more from this upstart young composer. Wagner was promptly hired as the musical director of the Saxon king's Dresden court and began his skyrocket to fame. With the wind at his back, Wagner continued to challenge the status quo. He became increasingly ambitious in his compositions, returning to his roots in literature. He wrote lyrical poems and stories for future operas. He basked in his newfound acclaim, drawing fans from across Europe. Soon, new students eager to absorb his innovative ideas were at his doorstep. One such student was Hans von Bülow, the oldest son of an aristocratic Saxon family. A passionate pianist, von Bülow's parents expected him to become a lawyer. He was just 12 years old when Rienzi premiered in Dresden. For von Bülow, though, the opera was a revelation. He had been studying music at an extraordinary pace since the age of nine, including with the great Hungarian composer Franz Liszt but he had never heard anything as exciting as Wagner's complex and dramatic opera. As soon as Wagner moved to Dresden full-time, von Bülow started attending as many of his idols' concerts and operas as he could. He studied Wagner's arrangements and compositions obsessively and began to write his own music. 
All he wanted was to, one day, compose equally exciting pieces, and he would do whatever it took to get there. Of course, he also dreamt of someday meeting his idol. When he was 16, Von Bülow finally got the chance. After sidling up to the Dresden Orchestra concertmaster, he finally convinced his new friend to let him tag along on a visit to Wagner. There, he promptly started gushing about how much he admired the maestro and how desperately he wanted to emulate him. Despite being used to his adoring fans, by now Wagner was always pleased to meet aspiring young musicians. Not only did he enjoy basking in the praise, but it reassured him that his style of music was the future. He couldn't wait to see how the younger generation would innovate even further. So he responded gracefully, only increasing von Bülow's awe. Before the teenager left, he did the 19th century equivalent of asking for Wagner's autograph. He requested that the composer sign his music notebook. Wagner wrote a few encouraging sentences, urging the teenage boy to keep practicing and refining his art, and to stay in touch. Von Bülow took those words seriously. As soon as he returned home, he threw himself into his work, Shortly after, he sent Wagner some of his compositions. It took Wagner a year to reply. He was, after all, a busy man. But when he did, he told von Bülow that he saw promise in his work. He again urged the teenager to stick with music and to send along more compositions when they were ready. As far as von Bülow was concerned, there was no better validation. The greatest living composer and the man he aspired to be had all but told him he could be a professional musician. Unfortunately, von Bülow knew his aristocratic parents would never allow it. They had let him attend a conservatory alongside his normal studies, but that was the extent of their flexibility. To his frustration, they made it clear that music could never be more than a hobby. Tensions between von Bülow and his family only increased in 1848 when he bowed to their pressure. He went to university to train as a lawyer, at exactly the moment the political situation in the region got far more tumultuous. Pro-democracy movements were growing throughout the Germanic kingdoms and threatened the social order that von Bülow's family benefited from. Yet the iconoclastic Wagner was all for them. He believed in upending the old order in politics and society as much as he did in music and the arts. Which meant to the more conservative aristocracy, including much of von Bülow's family, Wagner was a dangerous radical. In the midst of his university studies, von Bülow saw his two worlds splitting further apart, Wagner and his family. And he found himself increasingly pulled toward Wagner's side, he knew from personal experience that even the wealthy were trapped by closed-mindedness and backwards thinking. So von Bülow started dabbling in left-wing politics himself, eventually working on a political newspaper that scandalized the establishment and horrified his relatives. But as far as the action went, he was watching from the sidelines. In 1849, the situation reached a head. The conflict in Dresden between pro-democracy groups and the government finally spilled into the streets and turned violent. 
And Wagner wasn't just in the thick of it. He was one of the rebels' leading supporters. Despite the fact that he officially worked for the King of Saxony, he helped organize the public demonstrations against the monarchy. When it became clear that the military was going to strike back at the revolutionaries, Wagner helped design barricades and strategize a plan of attack. Unfortunately for him and his comrades, the rebellion was quickly quelled. Law enforcement was far better equipped and organized than the revolutionaries' makeshift battalions. Lots of rebels were wounded and killed, and those who survived were arrested and sentenced to death. Warrants were issued for all of the leaders, including Wagner. As soon as he realized the cause was lost and his head was on the chopping block, Wagner fled from Dresden in the dead of night. He headed towards Paris, but remained in the city only briefly. With the help of several acquaintances, he was able to escape into Switzerland. There, Wagner was safe from extradition. And he would survive, though he feared his financial troubles would soon return without the King of Saxony to support him and his music. 20-year-old von Bülow watched his idols escape with fascination more than anything. Wagner's courage of conviction felt like a call to arms on a more idealistic scale. Von Bülow was inspired by Wagner's willingness to give up his job and his comfortable life in order to live out his passion. If Wagner could do that, then von Bülow could surely stand up to his family and pursue the only thing he really wanted in life, music. In 1850, he finally gathered up his courage and made the announcement. He was giving up law and becoming a professional musician. Von Bülow's old piano teacher, Franz Liszt, passed on the news, which thrilled Wagner. He loved hearing that his fans were following in his footsteps. It was further indication of his power and success. He also recalled having been impressed with Von Bülow and suspected that he would be a good pupil. So he wrote to the young man, inviting him to come work with him in Switzerland. When von Bülow received Wagner's letter, he dropped everything and raced to Zurich. This was the moment he dreamed of for years. Not only would he be living as a professional musician, but he would be working with his idol, the great maestro Richard Wagner. Together, von Bülow felt sure they would change the face of music. Coming up, Wagner and von Bülow's creative collaboration masks the crumbling personal relationship that threatened it all. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viori, V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now back to the story. 
By 1850, 37-year-old musical iconoclast Richard Wagner and his 20-year-old protege Hans von Bülow had both burned the bridges of their past lives. Wagner was living in exile and once again struggling financially after supporting a failed democratic rebellion. Von Bülow had angered his aristocratic family by abandoning his legal studies and following Wagner to Switzerland, where he intended to study with the master. As soon as von Bülow arrived on the other side of the Alps, however, it became clear to Wagner that the young man was far more than just a promising pupil. Von Bülow's passion for Wagner's music not only matched the composer's, his ability to interpret, perform, and conduct it surpassed the older man's. Wagner was thrilled. Finally, here was a collaborator he could really trust, someone who could bring his music to the masses. Von Bülow was as thrilled at this new partnership as Wagner. With Wagner's guidance, he discovered his passion for conducting. This allowed him to interpret and perform the music he loved on a scale he'd barely dreamed of before. And the fact that Wagner was so impressed by him was all the validation he needed. Their partnership was secure and thriving, but both men knew that their work as innovative musicians couldn't begin and end with the music itself. They needed to get people to listen to their music, too, and fall under its spell. That task would have to fall on von Bülow. Wagner was still banned from Germany and was persona non grata amongst many European circles. Von Bülow, meanwhile, was a promising young musician in a position to tour the continent and hopefully gradually bring a new sound to the masses. So that's exactly what Von Bülow did. He spent much of the 1850s traveling Europe, cultivating his skills as a concert pianist and orchestra conductor, and he quickly became one of the music world's rising stars. But just because the musical establishment accepted von Bülow as a performer and conductor didn't mean they liked his whole repertoire. When he took a job in Berlin, he discovered that in the conservative Prussian capital, modern music was, at best, uncouth. When he first tried to perform the works of Wagner in Berlin, von Bülow's audiences regularly booed and walked out. But von Bülow wouldn't be deterred. He persisted. And slowly, his conducting chops began to win the critics over to the more modern music. If this talented young man believed in these compositions, perhaps there was something to it. With the help of von Bülow, Wagner's work was finally starting to take hold in even the most traditional German cities. As German audiences warmed to Wagner's work, the German states warmed to Wagner, too. He might still be a radical, but if he could just stick to music, then perhaps he could be invited back. For Wagner, this was an enormous opportunity. He'd lived through a decade of exile, after all, but he'd never stopped writing for German audiences or wanting to return home. But that meant the expectation of returning with perfect work in hand was all the greater. So, as talk of his potential return to Germany started to heat up in 1857 and 1858, Wagner invited von Bülow to visit him in Switzerland. He wanted his collaborators' input on several new operas. Von Bülow, despite his own newfound success, was as loyal to Wagner now as when he was a teen. He dropped everything for the invitation, rushing back over the Alps. He arrived on his old master's doorstep, breathlessly excited to hear the new works. 
Von Bülow's excitement grew as he sat down at Wagner's piano and began to read the music. He let his fingers take the lead, bringing the notes to life. Then he stopped abruptly. He turned to Wagner with a serious face and started to speak with a solemn voice. These were his friend's best works yet. While in exile, Wagner had challenged and reinvented opera. Von Bülow didn't know how his audiences across Europe would react, but he didn't care. This was the kind of music he'd dreamt of his whole life. The pieces Wagner showed him that day would go on to be two parts of the epic Ring Cycle and the composer's groundbreaking romantic tragedy, Tristan und Isolde. Von Bülow soon conducted an excerpt of the prelude to Tristan und Isolde in Prague the next year in 1859. And another year later, Wagner was finally allowed to return to most of the German kingdoms. But Wagner still wasn't back in everyone's good books. His new operas were even more avant-garde than the ones von Bülow had helped popularize, and his visions for their production even more expensive. Putting them up would require the kind of money and tolerance for risk that few people in 1860s Germany had. What Wagner needed was a German royal who didn't just accept, but loved modern music, who understood his work and had a vision for the future who wasn't afraid to jump off a cliff with him. That royal turned out to be the 19-year-old King Ludwig II of Bavaria. From the moment he saw his first Wagner opera several years earlier, Ludwig had been obsessed with the composer's vivid romantic stories and music. When he unexpectedly became king in 1864, Ludwig all but begged Wagner to come to Munich and let him fund the maestro's operas. This was the moment Wagner had been waiting for. He jumped at the opportunity, not wanting to give the king a chance to change his mind. But Wagner wouldn't go alone. If he was going to be preparing the world premiere of Tristan und Isolde, his greatest work to date, he needed von Bülow with him. Wagner knew that no other conductor could do his operas justice. Von Bülow could bring out things in his work that even he himself hadn't seen. To truly mark his return to Germany, Von Bülow had to be his collaborator. It didn't hurt that Von Bülow was now one of the biggest name conductors and pianists in Germany either, and indeed in Europe. Von Bülow's renown was now an asset to Wagner, too. Wagner persuaded King Ludwig to offer Von Bülow a well-paid position in Munich as the king's private pianist with plenty of time to work on productions of Wagner's operas. Obviously, von Bülow couldn't say no. It was a plum position, and best of all, he'd finally be able to fulfill his longtime dream of conducting a world premiere of a Wagner opera. The two men immediately got to work. While they put the finishing touches on Tristan und Isolde, von Bülow decided to kick off their tenure in Munich with a new production of Wagner's popular opera, Der Fliegende Hollander, or The Flying Dutchman. They also opened a new royal music school, cementing the king's cultural legacy. It was a new home for the musical experimentation they loved. By the time Tristan und Isolde opened in 1865, Munich had already become one of the most exciting places for modern music. With the opera's premiere, 
the two friends changed the entire cultural landscape. Tristan und Isolde is generally considered Wagner's most significant opera and a pivotal moment in Western musical history. Music historians broadly agree that it represented a culmination of previous styles of opera while simultaneously creating a new style of classical music. Not to mention that its lead roles were two of the most taxing singing parts ever written. Indeed, the tenor who debuted the part of Tristan died shortly after the opera closed. Apart from their performer's death, Wagner and von Bülow considered the opera an unqualified triumph. The entire continent was eagerly awaiting whatever the team did next. However, despite the outward appearance of success, their partnership was on the rocks. Unbeknownst to von Bülow, Wagner had seduced and fallen for von Bülow's 24-year-old wife, Cosima, She also happened to be their mutual friend, Franz Liszt's daughter. To be fair to Wagner and Cosima, Cosima had been miserably unhappy in her marriage to the workaholic von Bülow for years. She'd even expressed thoughts of suicide, and Wagner's marriage had recently fallen apart. On the other hand, Wagner was a known womanizer whose wife had left him in large part because of his affairs. Cosima was by no means the only woman he was romancing upon his return to Germany. The difference was that Cosima understood his musical world, thanks to her husband and father. Seeking the fulfillment she was missing from the distant von Bülow, she stepped in as much more than a mistress to Wagner. She soon became his secretary and advisor, managing his money and business relationships. As someone who loved to be worshipped and taken care of, This suited Wagner just fine. And at first, von Bülow was oblivious to the affair, or at least willfully ignorant. But it didn't take long for the truth to become clear. By the time Cosima gave birth to a daughter named Isolde, Munich was abuzz with the gossip that the infant was the composer's child. Von Bülow didn't know what to do. Wagner was his mentor and his creative partner, Von Bülow felt truly fulfilled by the work they did together. If he divorced Cosima, that would all go away. Not to mention he'd also lose his comfortable employment and his reputation would be in tatters. If he stayed, however, he would be condoning the betrayal and everyone would think he was a fool. Von Bülow felt trapped. He was unable to choose between his music and his dignity. Coming up... The love triangle comes to a head while both Wagner and Von Bülow try to cement their musical legacies. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cash back rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cashback rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. 
R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. At Sephora, we know how you love to use makeup, skincare, hair care, and fragrances that work for you, but also how important it is to be in the know about the ingredients that are in them, which is why we created Clean at Sephora, curated products from brands like Merit, Amica, Summer Fridays, and Fleur that have everything you want, minus certain ingredients you might not. Clean at Sephora is only at Sephora. Shop now at Sephora.com. Now, back to the story. In 1865, German musicians and close friends Richard Wagner and Hans von Bülow were at a crossroads. The two had just premiered Tristan und Isolde, an opera that would change the face of Western music. Von Bülow's wife, Cosima, had just given birth to a child. But no one knew whether the father was von Bülow or Wagner. Von Bülow was faced with an agonizing decision. Ignore Wagner's personal betrayal or break their professional partnership. Both options felt impossible. So he tried to find a middle ground, starting with urging Cosima to cut off the affair. Unfortunately, Cosima and Wagner had no interest in playing along with the compromise. They wanted to continue as things were. And they got their wish. Von Bülow was paralyzed by indecision, so by default accepted his status of cuckold. For the next three years, Wagner and Von Bülow continued to work together, bringing to the stage another of Wagner's new masterpieces, Die Meisterzinger von Nuremberg. In fact, Von Bülow was named the musical director of the Bavarian court, a position he'd long dreamt of. There, he produced some of the most exciting concerts and operas of the era. But the scandal of the collaborators' love triangle began to overshadow their work. All anyone could talk about was the horror of how shameless Wagner and Cosima were and how stupid Von Bülow must be. Von Bülow reached his breaking point when Cosima had another baby, This one was definitely Wagner's. He stormed through his fancy house, paid for by the patronage of the king Wagner had wooed. Everywhere he looked, there were signs of Wagner. He couldn't escape the man. This could go on no longer, but he was stuck in the contradiction. Wagner was still his musical idol, though certainly no longer his friend. In the end, it was Cosima who resolved the whole sordid affair. When she became pregnant a third time in 1868, she took her children and left von Bülow to move in with Wagner. The horror of the public scandal swept across Europe, finally forcing von Bülow's hand. He quietly divorced Cosima and ended his tenure in Munich. Wagner and Cosima got married shortly thereafter. Wagner and von Bülow never spoke again. Oddly, the former partners did continue to speak effusively of one another's musical talents, which continued to flourish even after they parted ways. After years of learning and innovation side by side, they were able to continue ahead and thrive individually. With Cosima managing his money and his work, Wagner completed the monumental ring cycle, as well as the innovative opera Parsifal. In the 1870s, the couple founded the Bayreuth Festival, an annual concert dedicated to Wagner's music, which continues to this day. 
Wagner even designed and built an opera house specifically designed for the Ring operas. By his death in the 1880s, he was considered one of the Western world's greatest musical geniuses. Von Bülow, meanwhile, married again and cemented his place as one of the greatest pianists and conductors of his era. His career was marked by his status as an international touring musician, and he revolutionized conducting as an art form. His fame introduced innovative new music to audiences in both Europe and North America. At the time of his death, he was as much a giant in the musical world as his once idol, Wagner. Unfortunately for von Bülow, however, where Wagner's compositions could live on for posterity, his work as a performer and conductor could not. Unsurprisingly, the maestro took center stage. Within a few decades, von Bülow was best known as the man whose wife Wagner stole. He was consigned to the gossipy footnotes of history. Wagner's fame, meanwhile, has only grown since his death. His dramatic compositions, so controversial throughout most of his lifetime, fit perfectly with a new art form that emerged at the end of the 19th century, moving pictures. Once again, Wagner was heralded as an innovative genius, a composer far ahead of his time. In fact, his music is still used in movies today. His Ride of the Valkyries from The Ring Cycle was famously part of the score for Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now. His pieces have arguably helped inspire the soundtracks of nearly every epic film made. But perhaps von Bülow's legacy is better off forgotten, granted how Wagner's was manipulated in the 20th century. Just as Wagner's reputation for genius has grown in the years since his death, so too have the controversies surrounding him. Wagner was never shy about his political views. He believed in a unified Germany, a position that got him in trouble throughout his life. His pro-democracy activism, which so inspired von Bülow, was driven by his belief that the German people deserved to govern themselves without the divisions of various petty monarchs. By the 1930s, 50 years after his death, that view was no longer so unpopular. In fact, it fit right into Adolf Hitler's pitch for a unified German Reich. Wagner's grand music and epic stories, many based on Northern European myths and legends, appealed to the nationalistic Hitler. He, too, was trying to tell a story about the German people, whom he believed were superior to everyone else on Earth. As one of the greatest musicians of all time, Hitler saw Wagner as the embodiment of that legacy. So Hitler adopted Wagner's music as one of the great representations of Nazi Germany. Which unearthed Wagner's 1850 anti-Semitic diatribe, which he wrote against Jews in the German music industry. Hitler could easily point to the tract to back up his argument that Jews weren't really German and didn't belong in Germany. Hitler did, however, blatantly ignore the fact that Wagner collaborated with, admired, and supported a number of Jewish musicians throughout his career. In the decades since the fall of Nazi Germany, Wagner's controversial association with the Third Reich has been hotly debated. No one denies his brilliance as a composer, but some commentators question if his work can be separated from a hateful ideology that claimed him as its poster child. 
It's clear where his former friend and collaborator Hans von Bülow would have stood on this conundrum. Despite all the pain that Wagner caused him, von Bülow went to his deathbed as a fierce advocate of Wagner's music. Von Bülow spent his entire career trying to introduce more people to Wagner's work, believing that the composer's genius and innovations would pave the way for the music of the future. He was right. What he never anticipated was that while he would be successful in securing Wagner's legacy, he too would disappear into the past, a crucial but forgotten piece of music history. Thanks for listening. You can find all episodes of Obituaries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll be back next week with a new episode on the linked legacies of two groundbreaking iconoclasts. Obituaries is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Obituaries was written by Kate Thorman, with writing assistance by Mackenzie Moore and Nora Battelle. Fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Brian Petrus and Haley Milliken. Obituaries stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy. <laughs>